Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be beginning my look at Herman Melville's 1855 novel, Israel Potter, His 50 Years of Exile. Uh, this is a, it's a novel of the Revolutionary War, but it's also a novel about early America. And it's a much more conventional novel than Pierre, of course. It's, it's not a hard novel. It's a really easy one. You can just pick up and read it. It's, it's kind of a, a basically an adventure story. Um, about a American POW during the war who gets captured, ends up in England and goes on different adventures and meet, meets great people like everyone from George III to Ben Franklin to John Paul Jones and, and others. So it's, a, it's kind of a conventional story, but we, we have this kind of tale of a wanderer, which of course is something we're aware of from Omu and, and Taipei and some of the other uh, novels. So it's not that far off. It's just a much more conventional story that Melville was trying to tell. Um, so what had it's published three years after Pierre. Now, if you've been following Melville's career th- uh, through this podcast, you'll know he publishes his first novel in 1846. And then between 1846 and 1852, a mere seven years, he publishes seven novels, but you know, pretty much one a year, including Moby Dick, including Marty, you know, major works, including Pierre. And then he doesn't really published another novel until 1855. Uh, certainly his career has t- got hit by blow after blow, uh, uh, bad reviews, bad sales. He does publish a few stories in, in magazines in the intervening years, and we'll look at those. Those get published later as the Piazza Tales in 1856, and then several of them remain unpublished, or at least they're not anthologized in his lifetime. So we'll look at those later in the series as well. So he is continuing to write and tr- continuing to try to make it as a writer, but his, his novelist career took, sort of, certainly took a blow. So, you know, this comes off as a much more conventional tale. Is it him trying to get his fame back, go back to writing something similar to what he wrote, maybe with Taipei, just a much simpler tale, a more straightforward adventure tale? I don't know. I actually think he has something here to say about the American experience. Uh, the, it's a 50-year exile, so the exile begins with early in the American Revolution and then carries on into much, um, into much well into American history. So it's almost got a kind of Rip Van Winkle kind of feel to it, where someone returns home and sees the changes in America. And we'll especially talk about that in the second half of the novel. Uh, the first half of the novel really centers around his, the, you know, the years of the American Revolution and the experiences... He goes on. So it's, it's a kind of a light novel, and it's not one that we, we need to maybe spend too long on. But I, uh, I do want to emphasize what I think is important about this story. But just to get us started, let me say that uh, this young man leaves America as an idealist, a patriot. And, and that's the snapshot he has of America that he's going to carry with him throughout his exile. So I think thematically, part of what Melville is doing is reflecting on that, that attitude, that perspective of, of kind of idealizing the past, right? And certainly people in Melville's lifetime were beginning to be, develop this kind of patriotism around these heroes, around these national heroes, the story of the American Revolution, right? This is before the Civil War, right? But we're getting closer to the Civil War in timeline and those crises, you know, that are breaking up America, along sectional lines are growing, but so is things like the 4th of July celebration and fetishizing things like the national anthem 
and you know the flag waving and, and and that's all tied with the rise of american democracy right which of course is a major theme of the, of the 1830s 1840s and, and 1850s leading up to the civil war so it has to be put sort of in that that context uh, now melville to get this published he basically had to promise his his publisher who was putnam i think this one yeah it was uh, G.P. Putnam, he basically said, that, like, well, that stuff you saw in Moby Dick and Pierre, I'm not going to do that anymore. This is just going to be a straight-up adventure tale, nothing weighty. And I mean, we could read it that way and, and try not to think too much about it. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with adventure tales and, and, and tales that allow us to, to kind of be introduced to some of these great figures in American history, but being that it is Melville, I think we have to be, we have to be aware that there's going to be a degree of satirization going on in these, in these depictions of these, of these, these figures and how they're presented. Uh, certainly they're not, I don't think, they're not meant to be historical, they're meant uh, to, to fit into the adventure tale, and maybe in some degrees they're, they're caricatures of the reality of these, of these figures. So, so it's going to be like George III, John Paul Jones, um, uh, who else shows up there? Um, ben Franklin. Those are the big ones, but um, you know, it's kind of like, wow, you know, look who we can meet, right? These are people who are becoming iconic in how Americans looked at themselves by this period in time, becoming really saint-like figures almost. Now, right at the beginning of the story, Melville kind of satirizes already the the kind of culture around Revolutionary War. Remembrance by addressing the novel to quote His Highness the Bunker Hill Monument, and then he writes this introduction, basically presenting the novel to the Bunker Hill Monument, saying uh, things like quote Such is the work and such is the man that I have the honor to present to your Highness. That the names here noted have not appeared in the volumes of Sparks may or may not be a matter of astonishment, but Israel Potter seems purposefully to have waited to make his popular advent under the present exalted patronage, seeing that your highness, according to the definition above, may in a loftier sense be deemed the great biographer, the national com commemorator of such the, uh, as the anonymous privates of June 17th, 1775, who may never have received other requital than the solid reward of your granite." End quote. So he's, he's feeding into the, the culture of national commemoration. Um, and to the degree he's satirizing it is something we'll have to consider as we, as we take a closer look at the story. So chapter one is called The Birthplace of Israel. And um, what Melville does here is just ties this great, this, well, great, but the, he's a run-of-the-mill patriot, but he's a, he's a good patriot, right? He's, he does everything right. He serves in the army. He's a, a proud American till the day he dies or till the end of the story. Uh, he serves... You know, even taking his 50 years of exile as the consequences of serving in, in, in the war. So he is the ideal patriot in this way. But where does he come from? Well, he comes from the Berkshires. He comes from upstate New York. Or is it the Massachusetts side of... Yeah, sorry, it's Pierre that's set in New York. This is set, or this is at least the opening scenes are in Massachusetts. So again, the, this homeland of, of the American Revolution. And Melville comes around and, sa and says... Uh, nor could a fitter country be found for the birthplace of the devoted patriot Israel Potter. To this day, the best stone wall builders and the best wood choppers come from these solitary mountain towns, a tall, athletic, and hardy race, unerring with the axe as the Indian, with the tomahawk as stone rolling, patient as Sisyphus, powerful as Samson. Um, 
itself. A bit overwritten, and if this is mocking the patriotic storytelling and adventure tales of the time, you can kind of see what he's doing here. He's 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 speaking their language and kind of over kind of blowing up the image of the of the common um, patriot soldier. Even his name speaks to good Puritan roots, you know, the name of Israel. So the first chapter is just very much about the geography and, uh, you know, how this part of the country makes these hardy patriots. Chapter two is called The Youthful Adventures of Israel. And this just uh, scans throughout his, his childhood uh, in this, in the Berkshires and along the Huskatonic and the various things he gets involved with. Very early in his young adulthood, Israel Potter decides to break free of his family and set off on his own to the goal of maybe getting eventually eventual marriage, but he has to do it on his own. So again, a, a, a classic Americanism, right? The young man setting off his own to make his own way in the world. And he tries various jobs, various employment, uh, fur trapping for a while. He goes on some sea travels. He kind of lives in a you know, hermitage for a while, he becomes a whaler. So he does all the various jobs that a good New England person would, young man, would be capable of doing, right? It's a bit, you know, in fact, he crammed a lot into his young life. Uh, so I think, again, Melville's just kind of going through the stereotypes of, of what this figure, this guy like Israel Potter, would have, have gone through. Traveling to Puerto Rico, uh, to the Pacific, to hunt the Leviathan. Uh, trip to Canada for trapping, you know, hunting, all these kinds of things that he's involved in. So it's just a, a quick quick tour of his the jobs he had as a young man. And right away in chapter three, he goes off to war. The war begins, 1775, fighting begins in in Massachusetts, and he's involved he's there for the Battle of, of Bunker Hill. We don't get too much not that much is set not, Melville doesn't say much about much about it. For you, you open up the novel, you think you're going to have something about the Battle of Bunker Hill, but it's there for like two pages, and he gets captured um, during the after the battle uh, while he's at sea. So after the he fights the battle, of course that battle was won by by the Americans, and that was part of what led the the British be forced to withdraw from New England and reposition themselves in New York. If you remember your military history of the American Revolution. Uh, after this, uh, Israel Potter becomes a, a sailor on an American ship and is captured. Um, yeah, he's on the brigantine named Washington. Already a ship is named after, after Washington. And he gets captured by, by the British and he's sent off to, to England. And once he gets to England, there's, there's a scene where he's at a pub and he immediately escapes. Uh, he's actually in irons, but he's able to escape. And he gets recaptured and he escapes again. So he does what a good American prisoner of war should do when under British control and that has tried to escape. And it, it creates these nice little set pieces of, you know, which, you know, the, what you'd expect in this kind of adventurous story. There's even a nice little moment where he has to, he switches his clothes with, a, with an old man to try to fake it as a British, but he doesn't change like a sailor's sh um, shirt, so he gets, you know, identified by by soldiers who are passing by as a, you know, as a sailor, and this gets him eventually recaptured. But he, he gets, a, he gets, he, es he escapes eventually, and he's, 
he's a refugee in, in England, uh, a refugee prisoner of war. Wait, that's in chapter four. So in chapter four is when he's, he's trying to get to London, um, you know, hoping to escape into the, the, the urban environment of London. He's like 16 miles away from London. He, he switches his clothes with, the, with uh, this, this worker on the road. I think he's like a digger of some sort. Um, but he's still apprehended by soldiers who identify him as a sailor, who's as a deserter of the British Navy. They don't identify him as an American right away. And he's captured again, but he once again escapes and finds his way to a country estate of a man named Sir John Millet. Now, chapter four is called uh, Further Wanderings of the Refugee with Some Account of a Good Knight who, of Breton Fort who befriended him. That's this, this, um, this Sir John Millet who he befriends. Um, but he kind of exposes himself as an American, and this is really one of the one of the first really memorable parts of the of the book, where he really exposes himself kind of as a, as an American, and we see the tension between kind of this American democracy and the English aristocratic way of life. And so, one thing that this man can't really stomach is that he doesn't call him Sir Millet, and. So this is what we get. My poor fellow, said Sir John, now pouring out a glass of wine and handing it to Israel. I perceive that you are an American, and if I'm not mistaken, you are an escaped prisoner of war. But have no fear, drink the wine. Mr. Millet, explained Israel, gasped, the untasted wine trembling in his hands. Mr. Millet, I... Mr. Millet, there it is again. Why don't you say Sir John like the rest? Why, sir, pardon me, but somehow I can't. I've tried, but I can't. You won't betray me for that. Betray, poor fellow. Hark ye, your history is doubtless a secret which you would not wish to divulge with a stranger. But whatever happens to you, I pledge you my honor, I'll never betray you. God bless you for that, Mr. Millet. Come, come, call me by my right name. I'm not Mr. Millet. You have said sir to me, and no doubt you have said it two thousand and a thousand times to John to other people. Now you can complete the two. Try once. Come, only sir, and then John. Sir John, that's all. John, I can't. Sir, sir, your pardon? I didn't mean that. And so he just can't even get it out of his mouth, the word Sir John, because it's just too aristocratic. And it might be a little bit overblown here and exaggerated, but uh, the, the point is well made, that he's an American deep down. So anyway, after hanging out with this um, Mr. Mr. Millet, uh, Israel Potters wanders off again. <coughs> Excuse me. And he eventually gets a job. This is in Chapter 5 called Israel in the Lion's Den, a great, another great title. Um, it's just four pages long, but a lot happens here in that he basically gets a job as the gardener in the king's kind of, I don't know, country estate. It's, it's not in the city. It's kind of in the outskirts. But he's working there, and then the, the king sees him and identifies him as an American. And they have a little bit of a conversation about it. He doesn't capture him. He doesn't like send him off to, to jail for this. But he just banters with him, and he, it seems that the king is really interested in knowing you know, what it is that make these Americans such ferocious fighters and, and so resistant to accepting British authority. And, and he even says, that, like, you're a stubborn race at one point. They talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill, and he says he was there, and, you know, he kind of jokes about how they were flogged. You know, the British soldiers were flogged by the Americans there. And again, it seems the point of this conversation is to articulate the difference between kind of this American hardiness and, and the, the British aristocratic uh, system. 
And eventually the, the king concludes that Israel is an okay guy, saying, Well, you're an honest rebel. Rebel, yes, rebel. Hark ye, hark. Say nothing of this talk to no one, and hark again. So long as you remain here at Q, I shall see that you're safe. And, and that's it. So it's, it's a nice little aside, and, and George III is presented in a, in a basically good way, but still uh, stuck with these hierarchical uh, arrangements and ways of life. Eventually, though, he, when the season ends, he has to go off, and he's, he's on the road again after working there for like a season or so. So then in chapter 6, Israel, he's back on the road trying to find uh, friends, trying to find a job, some kind of work. And he eventually runs into this, to this man who, who's, who's, who's described here as a friend of Americans. His name's John Woodcock. And he, there's other guys there that are, I guess are, they're British, but they're siding with America. And they eventually recruit Israel Potter into into a mission to basically deliver a message to Ben Franklin, who was at the time in Paris on the diplomatic missions. Uh, you know, he was involved in the diplomacy with, with France at the time, which of course eventually culminates in the French recognizing the United States and, and joining the war on their side. Uh, but he's hanging out there. But, you know, I don't know how much of this is real, but if there, were, there must have been some kind of spy activity to, to, to allow these people to keep contact. But they prepare a message for him and, and give him a way to smuggle it in across the channel and, and send him off on his, on his first spy mission. And then our author doesn't waste much time in Chapter 7 before introducing Israel Potter to, to uh, the, quote, renowned sage Dr. Franklin, uh, who is presenting here kind of as the poor Richard's Ben Franklin, right? And I think that's basically how Ben Franklin was being remembered at that time in American history. Of course, we have biographies and historical works that have kind of complicated that view of Ben Franklin. You know, but really here we got the Ben Franklin of poor Richard Almanac, the, the, ben, the advice giving, the, the frugal Ben Franklin, the, the modest one, uh, the wise advice giving Ben Franklin. That, that's who we get in in these chapters, and it's a handful of chapters where we we see him. But you know, despite Ben Franklin being in Paris, being uh, you know in Europe, you know, when Israel Potter walks in the room, Ben Franklin like immediately smells him and says, "I smell Indian corn," which is of course a metaphor for you know smelling an American and the American way of life. That that being a very American thing. And he asked him for news from from the war and from from America. And of course, Israel can't say that much about it but yeah mostly in this chapter it's a kind of a fun one but it's really heavy on kind of the poor richard style of of ben franklin i'll just quote one thing he says um you know bravery in a poor cause is the height of simplicity my friend count out your change it must be a french coin not english that you are to pay a man with ah that will do these three coins will be enough put them in pockets separate from the other cash now go and hasten to the bridge, end quote. So in one sentence, he gives kind of moral advice. He gives about bravery. He gives practical advice on how to conserve his money and, and how to spend it properly. So again, it's very much the, the poor Richard ones. Um, there's a later on at the end of chapter seven, a, a little side about uh, a bottle of wine and which bottle of wine you should buy and or should you have wine with meals. And like the meal is like two pence and your bottle of wine is... 39 pence and you have a couple glasses that the, the wine is more than the meal right and he's asking is this wise to do you know or should you save your money just on food and very very about the thrift 
Um, and I don't know if Ben Franklin was really that thrifty in, in life. What I've read is that you know, he, he didn't really live his life as presented in Poor Richard's Almanac, at least not all the time. Um, but in any case, that's, that's sort of what you get here. So in, in chapter eight, this just kind of continues the conversation with Ben, ben, ben Franklin. We learn that he's living like in the Latin Quarter, uh, both for frugality and to be around kind of other artists or intellectuals. This is what Melville writes. In this congenital vicinity of the Latin Quarter and in an ancient building, something like the last alluded to, at a point midway between Palace de Buar and the College of the Sorbonne, this vulnerable American envoy pitched his tent when not passing his time at the country retreat at Passe. The frugality of his manner of life did not lose him the good opinion even of the voluptuaries of the showiest capitals, whose very iron railings were not free from guilt. Franklin was not less a ladies' man than a man's man, a wise man, an old man. Not only did he enjoy the homage of the choicest Parisian literati, but at the age of 72 he was caressed, favored at the highest-born beauties of the court, who through blind fashion, having been originally attracted to him as the famous savant, were permanently retained in his, as his admirers by his Plato-like graciousness of good humor. Having carefully weighed the world, Franklin could not act any part in it. By nature turned it out, his mind was often grave, but never serious. And yeah, it's just more of this. And he goes on for another page talking about the, the style of life that Frank was living there. You know, him being a jack of all traits, skilled in many things, frugal and all that. And this frugal, frugality even comes in when Israel Potter gets a house, gets a place to stay while he's in Paris. And... When Franklin visits, he'll even take stuff away from Israel Potter, saying, you don't really need that. It's not necessary for your life. And eventually, Israel Potter even reads uh, Poor Richard's Almanac and, and finds that it's very difficult for him to live up to this ideal of, of frugality presented in that, in that book. So, you know, you got, if you wanted this whole section on Ben Franklin, it's really chapters 7, 8, and 9, where we get this... this uh, experience that he has with um, with this great American revolutionary leader in, while he's in Paris. So then in chapter 10, we're introduced to John Paul Jones. He, it's presented as another adventurer appears on the scene. That's the name of the chapter. And here's how he's introduced to us. Again, very, very American is the image we get. He was a rather small, elastic, swarthy man with an aspect of a disinherited Indian chief of, in European clothes. And unvanquishable enthusiasm intensified to perfect sobriety couched in his savage self-possessed eye he was elegantly and somewhat extravagantly dressed as a civilian he carried himself with a rustic barbaric jauntiness strangely dashed with a super induced touch of the parisian salon his tawny cheek like a date spoke of the tropics a wonderful atmosphere of proud friendlessness and scornful isolation invested him yet there was a bit of the poet as well in the outlaw in him too a cool solemnity of intrepidude sat on his lip. He looked like one, uh, like one who of purpose sought out harm's way. He looked like one who had never been and never would be a subordinate. So that, that's great stuff. That's, um, that's our introduction to John Paul Jones. And he has these conversations with, with, um, with Franklin as well. And Israel Potter is kind of the observer of these conversations. So John Paul Jones gets put up with Israel Potter. They stay in the same apartment, and, and he's always active. He's reading Poor Richard's Almanac and getting advice from it. He's pacing all night. He's always kind of boisterous and, and, and you know, 
giving his opinion about things. So he's uh, kind of a, like kind of presented as a as a big mouth jock, but virtuous and intelligent, and just a commanding, attractive personality, right? So chapter 12, uh, Ben Franklin sends Israel Potter back across the channel to, to England, back to, uh, was it Woodcock and, and those, those people he met, that the, the Friends of America who originally sent them on the, on, on the mission there. Um, but we see Ben Franklin always being an inventor, always keeping his eyes open for a way to improve things. And what he wants to improve is the false heel in which Israel Potter smuggled in the message. He said, ah, if we had time, we could make a better false heel for you, but we don't have time. So he sends them back there. So Israel goes back to England and he's then hiding in, he goes, he goes back to the house of this Squire Woodcock. He's the one who originally sent him across the channel and he's kind of hiding in the house. And this, he says, I'll come look for you from time to time. Keep, keep an eye on you. Make sure you're safe while you're hiding out. And there's like a secret building secret like passage in the house that he's kept in um, but you know after a while he doesn't get any visits so he starts to worry and he emerges from it and he learns that woodcock has has died and right at the end of chapter 12 he actually is searching the the house the cottage after, after coming to the conclusion that this this man was has been killed or captured or something and he actually like steps on um like a special lever or something on the floor and this opens up this, his closet which is is kind of a nice little um, aspect because you know it's, it's a spy you know they're involved in secret shenanigans so they have a secret door uh, into this closet um, but this of course is very handy for for our hero because now he can kind of get new clothes and this will help him you know as he escapes the house and and goes on other adventures and try to find a new you know a new place to go, a new new path to follow, because you know Squire Woodcock is not going to be any help to him, obviously. Now, after he he kind of dresses in the clothes of a beggar and, and goes out, and I suppose he could have dressed in different clothes because he had the Squire Woodcock's entire wardrobe, but he he picks the clothes of the the beggar. But you know, Israel Potter's is basically an optimistic character throughout the novel, uh, but here we see him a little bit despairing, calling out you know really his frustration at you know all his service to america has, has left him uh, abandoned and hopeless he says ah what a true patriot gets for serving his country um, but uh he eventually is is impressed into the british navy at the end of at the end of chapter 13 and i think that's a good place to stop uh, we're already about halfway through this novel again it's a very quick adventure tale it, it really can be written you know read very in just one or two settings um, let me just say a few words about impressment in case you're unfamiliar with it. This was, of course, a major grievance of American sailors at the time of the American Revolution. It would continue to be one into the War of 1812 and, and even a little bit after it, where the British essentially would, would just take people from the merchant, merchant seamen and force them into the military uh, and they would do this in London, but they do it in other places as well across their, their empire. And this, of course, dragged up many Americans and the people who weren't British subjects. 
and that they'd get dragged into this. And that became a really a major grievance in the War of 1812, of course, but it was a, a long-standing issue for many merchant seamen in the service of, of the American merchant fleet. And, and again, I think Melville here seems to be really hitting all the, the notes of what a patriotic adventure story would be at this time, you know, the great heroes, the, the Battle of Bunker Hill, this, you know, this, the, the danger of being a spy in the American service in the lion's den, you know, talking truth to power in the case of the, of the knight, or the, 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 was it Sir Millet or Sir John Millet? Or even to the king, right? So we got this very, uh, we got this perfect patriot presented here, uh, who suffers for his service to America, and eventually he gets impressed too. So that just continues his his misery and his exile. Um, now, where all this leads is something we're going to have to look at in the next episode when I finish up my 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 look at uh, Israel Potter. So, anyways, I don't know if you have anything to say about this novel. If you read it, if you have your own thoughts about it, you can. Leave it below. I'll, I'll have more to say in the next episode when we finish up, and I'll give you what I think are some of the major themes of this book and, and how we should place this in American literature and in Melville's own own writing. So as always, thanks for, for listening. I, I hope uh, you pick up Israel Potter and take a look at it and let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So uh, next time will be part two of my thoughts on Israel Potter. Thanks for listening.